Hello, this is Rob Almeida. Welcome to another edition of the Strategist Corner Podcast. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as a solicitation or investment advice from the advisor. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Today, I'm talking with MFS High Yield Manager Mike Scatrude. Covering Mike's two-decade career looking at high-yield companies, we learn about the experiences that formulated and how he thinks about high-yield investing, and we lead into the current risk and reward presented in the high-yield market today. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Mike. Mike, welcome. Thank you. So before we get going, tell us um, how you got interested in the industry, how you got started before you came to MFS. Take us back. Sure. Well, I'll take you way back. Okay. Uh, when I started in the buy side, I stumbled into a role as a quantitative fixed income research associate, which I really didn't know what that was at the time. <laughs> I was at a different firm. It was a lot of math, a lot of spreadsheets. Great introduction to the buy side, great introduction to fixed income and all the bond math and all that. But I said to myself, gosh, there has to be more to it than all these spreadsheets mm -hmm. with just numbers. Like, does it relate to something in the real world that I could see or touch? And so I ended up going back to business school to pivot more toward analyzing companies and industries as a fundamental analyst. And so I started doing that in high yield um, a couple decades ago. I can say that now. And um, it was really a good fit. It did have... Um, obviously a, con a quantitative aspect to analyzing companies, but also that interaction with management teams, really understanding what goes on in the real world. How are businesses right. competitive? How do they fund themselves? And of course, in fixed income, uh, what can go wrong uh, when companies get over their skis in terms of financial leverage? And so that's kind of how the journey began. And so I'm very um, interested in you know, the quantitative aspect of investing, but I feel like the, the switch over to fundamental has been a good fit for me. So maybe that's a great place to start. So what were some of the maybe inflection points or big learnings uh, from that era? What, what sort of formulated your view on, on how to think about high yield investing? That's a great question. So the first industry I had the pleasure of following was steel in the early 2000s. <laughs> oh, wow. And steel's not as big an industry today in the high yield index, index of course. There have been a lot of casualties along the way. And I was living through that, where you're in a recessionary environment. The companies would go bankrupt faster than I could pick up coverage of them. And it was a real eye-opener uh, for me in the sense that, on the one hand, as a fixed income investor in high yield, you're promised, uh, promised mm -hmm. maybe in air quotes, <laughs> a, uh, a coupon return. And yet, if things go wrong in high yield, these companies have a lot of debt, and you might not get that coupon. And that was really uh, an eye-opener. It also, as you can imagine, was a crash course into how do you value enterprises, especially when there might be you know, forced sales and, and that sort of thing. So there's so much that goes on in, in fixing, but particularly in high yield, it's, maybe the, the asset class that most translates across so many different risk spectrums. So you covered some of them. So you know, you have not just the fixed income element, but obviously also the, the credit element and the bankruptcy element. Maybe bringing that all together, how does that translate to how you manage high yield strategies today? Right. So I think from a portfolio management point of view, it's really that intersection of the top-down risk management along with the bottom-up research aspect of it. That's another piece I didn't mention, but it's it's understood that high yield is a very research intensive asset class. And a lot of these companies 
while they may be correlated to their industry, like a steel company, yeah. a lot of them do have very company-specific idiosyncratic risks that we have to understand. And I think my formative years, if you will, in high yield reminded me that if we're looking at the risk return profile at the portfolio level, we can't lose sight of the risk. You know, that we, we do have um, others in our industry who maybe have a tendency to put the pedal, uh, the, the foot on the accelerator a little bit more when it comes to through cycle risk. And I've always kind of gone back to this idea where, you know, it's great when high yield's good, it's good, and you're clipping the, the coupon and things are working out great, but when it's bad, it's really bad. And so the way we approach it now is really thinking about, okay, let's acknowledge what the upside scenario is. What could the, the return in a positive way be for this investment? But you know what? It's a batting average game. We're not perfect. If we get it wrong, how much could this cost us? It's not saying we won't take risk, but we want to make sure that the compensation is there. And then we also want to make sure that if we're wrong, it's not going to um, disproportionately affect the, the performance stream. So it's really, what are the ranges of outcomes? Right. What, what can go right, uh, I guess, fundamentally. Right. Um, you get paid back, get your principal back, get your right. coupon back. And then what you're referring to is, is what can go wrong. Right. That's and, right. And as a lender, it can be everything, right? I mean, it can. You know, one one of the critiques of the asset class is if you're buying a high yield bond at par, uh, the best that can happen to you is you do you get your coupon and then you get paid back at par. But the reality is the the worst thing that can happen to you in some cases is the company hits the wall, uh, files for bankruptcy, and your recovery can be next to nothing. And so it really, um, in certain market conditions where investors have gotten complacent, it's really important to think about that asymmetry and be very cognizant of, okay, we want to um, be positioned in a way where we can take advantage of good bottom-up ideas that our analysts have, but we also need to manage the overall risk positioning of the portfolio in the event that uh, something unexpected uh, plays out. Or to be fair, a lot of what we're doing up front is identifying the risks. And we assign some probability, even in a qualitative way, to what's the likelihood that some of these downside risks could materialize. And we hope more often than not, even though we've identified them, uh, they don't materialize and we're getting a, you know, a good return above and beyond the inherent risk of the investment. But every once in a while, of course, we get surprised too. And that's where really the risk management aspect of, of managing the portfolio comes into play. So two things you said that probably jumped out, it jumped out to me, probably jumped out to our listeners. Complacency, and asymmetry. So maybe let's triangulate that to the current market environment. So we had a recession in 2020. I guess you could call uh, it yeah, that. I guess you could call it. Yeah, right. We, we financed. We bought our way out of it. So we really maybe didn't have one. I guess I'll let you, you talk to us a little bit about how you think about high yield today in the context of, of everything that has happened and maybe everything that you think might happen. Okay. So I would say Let's go back even a bit okay. further than the most recent pandemic experience. I would make the claim that really since the global financial crisis in 2008, investors have been conditioned across all sorts of risky assets, including high yield, to buy on the dips. Mm -hmm. When we've seen downturns over the last 10 plus years, they tend to be short-lived. They tend to be buying opportunities. And we really haven't seen a widespread true default cycle. By that, I mean, you know, we've seen certain pockets of, of trouble. So if you go back to 2015, you certainly see we had some energy and commodity related stresses in high yield, but it really wasn't 
uh, in the U.S., a recessionary environment. And so for investors who added risk, you know, on the dips that that worked out and certainly now bring it back into the pandemic experience. It was another episode that really reinforced that that uh, philosophy that that some investors have where don't overthink it. Just buy on the dips and you're going to get bailed out by fiscal stimulus or monetary intervention or Fed facilities that can buy uh, high yield bonds and so on and so forth. And I think that promotes the complacency that that really um, leads people to forget about, well, what if you do have a recession, a true recession across a lot of different industries where there is demand destruction? It's not just limited to commodities or one particular sector, but it's truly a widespread and sustained economic slowdown that lasts, quite frankly, more than the two months we saw in 2020. You know, that's not that's not normal. So we come to today and your question about the market and where we are in the cycle. High yield valuations are not particularly compelling, we would argue. And, and, and really, I think it's because investors are assuming that this is more of the same. Yep. You know, you've, if you bought the most bombed out stuff in 2020, pretty much across the board, good business, bad business, there really wasn't a lot of differentiation coming out of that initially because <clears throat> everything went up in value and high yield, um, you know, and, and the riskier it was, the the better. So if you had, uh, you know, bombed out um, energy companies, you know, we had a brief period in early 2020 where oil prices were negative, and that's a uh, quirk of the market, but we had energy companies that were at 50 cents on the dollar, and they've basically doubled in price. So the question is, where do we go from here with so much good news, if you will? And it's, it's weird to say good news because obviously there's a lot of challenges in the world. You know, we see the geopolitical, of course, comes to mind and the, the tragic war in Ukraine. But we also see in the U.S., a central bank trying to unwind some of the stimulus in the face of what seems to be tenacious inflation. And that's going to have an effect. We really feel that the probability of a, a protracted slowdown and a, even a, a true recession is much higher than it has been. And if you look at high yield spreads in the U.S., they're still uh, at the lower end of the range. And so when we put it all together from the top down, we say, gosh, we don't think we're getting compensated for the potential downside risk. And this goes to the second part of your question regarding asymmetry. We really think about how much better can things get in terms of fundamentals, understanding that there's some um, headwinds looking us in the face, intersecting with the valuation, you know, the, the upside downside uh, return characteristics um, in high yield don't look particularly compelling. If the market were to become more concerned and valuations were to cheapen up, meaning spreads would go up because the market thinks, oh, gosh, maybe we are headed into a recession, what we typically see then is the market overshoots, and that can create opportunities, but we're not there yet. Right. So you talked about complacency leading to asymmetry, something that you and your co-manager, David uh, Cole, have talked about um, internally uh, is, or at least maybe I've uh, nicknamed it, fake spread. Right. So... Where do you think, so spreads at 300 plus over um, relative to treasuries is, is below average. And in the context of a fake spread, maybe first define that for the audience a, a little bit. And then where do you think spreads really are, or I guess maybe should be, given the risks that you and, and the team are observing today? Sure, that's a good question. So when we talk about fake spread, we really mean 
even though these companies have committed to pay us our coupon, our interest, and our principal back, they don't always do that. And so we certainly see, in especially in the lower quality tiers of high yield, you may have a promised yield. Uh, whether or not you actually earn it and receive that um, remains to be seen. To be fair, in the current environment, the distress ratio is relatively low. Mm -hmm. Companies coming out of the pandemic have done a good job of extending maturities. They've also put extra cash on their balance sheets. So I want to pr present a balanced view and say the, the folks who have bid up high yield, if you will, are not completely without their reasons because coming out of the pandemic, companies did do what they, they could to, to shore up their balance sheets <clears throat> and, excuse me, be in a, be in a better spot uh, if we are going into um, a slower a slower economic in, environment for sure. So the fake spread concept is one where at the moment would be limited toward the down in quality names where you kind of say, gosh, our analysts think this company is either in a difficult industry and or a difficult competitive position. It might have a 10% yield. We don't think we're going to get that. And obviously, those are the kinds of names we want to avoid, especially if we think there's an elevated probability of going into a recession. To your question about the valuation, where should spreads be? That's a little bit um, of, an, of an art and a, you know, meets sure. the science, yeah. maybe more art than science. You can think about, you know, why do we get a spread over treasuries anyway? It's really a combination of two things. One is we need to get compensated for permanent capital losses in the form of default. As I said, at the moment, it seems like you could maybe make an argument that those default losses are going to be subdued over the near term. <clears throat> I think the question is, over a longer horizon, is the market sufficiently compensating high-yield investors for permanent losses of capital, meaning the company goes bankrupt, you bought the bond at par, and you get 30 cents back. That remains to be seen, but that's one of the components. I think the other component is just the risk premium, and, and that can be kind of a nebulous term, but by that we just mean, how much should you get paid for the volatility and the uncertainty in the world? And we would argue today, given, again, the central bank uh, reversal of um, accommodative monetary policy, the geopolitical risk we certainly see, and then the ongoing inflation, supply chain disruption, um, profit margins rolling over, we feel like that risk premium piece should be higher than it is. And that's a little bit tricky to measure, but you put it all together, and with high yield spreads in the 300s currently, and you look at long-term average high yield spreads in the U.S., probably closer to the mid 500s, you could make an argument that uh, we should probably be at least 100 basis points wider if I had to put a number on it. Um, but what we also see is high yield spreads rarely pause uh, at the average level. They tend to either be going much wider on the way uh, you know, into economic trouble and then much tighter when things recover. Well, it's interesting. I, I wonder, if, and I love your perspective on this, if one of the reasons for the uniquely tight spreads. It's just the, the conditioning that investors have grown to, like you mentioned before, in the, in the post-GFC era, when there was a blip, there was some sort of economic relapse, central bankers would step in, liquefy the market, and, and provide a, a, a floor, if you will. And maybe this current investor base that hasn't lived through a full cycle or a real recession has been uh, unintentionally or mistakenly programmed to think that um, markets don't price down um, or they, they price down moderately or, or, or slowly. But as we've lived through, as you've lived through, that's, that's not the case um, when you have a full recession. I think that's right. And I think that um, I wonder to myself, if we had a recession that even lasted several quarters, 
I think that would feel like an excruciatingly right. long time right. to many investors. If the last recession was two months and it was over before you even really knew what was going on and there was so much stimulus, asset prices certainly got ahead of that and it was a quick drawdown and then a very quick recovery. But again, a more typical multi-quarter recession, I think, would uh, lead to a very uh, violent adjustment in high-yield pricing. So people listening are probably surprised that uh, you're speaking relatively bearishly about your asset class. But I, I, I think what people should know is you're lending money to companies, not to the market. Right. Right. So talk a little bit about, um, from a I guess, opportunistic perspective or positive perspective, and maybe you know, keep individual company names out of it from a compliance standpoint, but um, there are viable opportunities in high yield. And really what you're making the case for is security selection. Right. That's right. So we are fortunate at MFS to have a terrific research team. By now, you've all heard about the collaborative global nature of the, the research platform. And as we build the high-yield portfolio bond by bond, we leverage that expertise every day. And we're so grateful for that. So you're right. At any point in the cycle, even now when we're not as constructive on the overall high-yield market from a valuation risk-return point of view, there are opportunities. And so what we're really trying to do is take a look at the types of businesses that have performed well, say, year-to-date, mm -hmm. uh, and assess through a, a critical lens with the help of our research team, are these businesses that have outperformed in 2022 likely to continue to outperform if we're going into a murkier or less constructive uh, macroeconomic environment. And so there's there's certain uh, areas that we're a little bit uh, more cautious on. So for example, it won't come as a surprise that energy has been a sector sure. that's performed really well. And if we do see demand destruction, either because of high prices or slower economic growth or the combination of the two, that could be an area at, at risk. But you're right. If we sell something in energy, we need to redeploy that capital somewhere else. And so what we've been looking at is really higher quality businesses. So by high yield standards, these are businesses that typically have a combination of a stronger balance sheet, mm -hmm. so less leverage, and a competitive position and free cash flow profile that means they'll be fine, even if we do go into a recession. We quantify the leverage for, for the listeners, or balance sheet, like what, range that for me. Yeah, so the, the typical metric we use in, in high yield for, for leverage is um, a debt to even EBITDA. Mm -hmm. So you can think of debt as, as a measure of a cash flow proxy, if you will. Yep. And I would say if, if you're uh, in a stable business where through cycle, you have two or three times uh, debt to EBITDA, okay. that's going to be a pretty good spot to be in. I think it also speaks to the variability around companies' balance sheets. Going back to my steel companies, you can imagine that at the peak of the cycle, they had practically no leverage when they're EBITDA and earnings was very large, but of course at the trough of the cycle when the, the EBITDA went negative, how do you even calculate you know, leverage? It's very bad. On the other hand, we have businesses and, and industries that we've been thinking about more recently. You can imagine food and beverage would be one that we would expect to hold up pretty well. That should be a pretty stable uh, leverage profile through the cycle. We look at other industries like wireless to the extent that uh, even in a recession, you're going to pay your cell phone bill. And so that should be a pretty steady uh, type of business. And what's tricky in the near term, given the uncertainty around how will the economic backdrop develop over the rest of the year, how, much, how long will it take if things fall out of bed to actually happen? You can imagine for more stable, 
businesses with less leverage, you're not getting paid as much in spread terms or yield terms today. But that speaks to another aspect of how we invest, which is really a longer term horizon. And it's going to take call it one to two years for us to know. And we'll know in hindsight, did we have a recession or not? Did the Fed raise rates too fast and all of that? But we know it will be obvious in hindsight. What we don't know is how long will it take to play out? But because we have a long-term orientation and a long-term time horizon here, and because we feel very good about investing in good businesses that our research process and our terrific colleagues all over the world have identified for us, we feel good about giving up a little bit of compensation today, knowing that on a through cycle basis, these are businesses that no matter what happens in the broader world, are survivors and are going to be here for the long haul. And I, on a risk adjusted basis, that should lead to uh, attractive risk adjusted returns over time. So one of the unintended consequences of the massive amount of stimulus in central bank policy has obviously been inflation. But really what you're highlighting is the growing risks inside the real economy and how that's manifested into complacency and potentially asymmetric, not potentially, but asymmetric risk in fixed income. And I just think of the um, growing group of investors that have been maybe taught the wrong lesson over the last 10 or 11 years that uh, there's a a Fed put, if you will, or that there's a a policy there that's going to protect you. And given where inflation is now, given the direction of monetary policy as a result, that security blanket or safety net isn't going to be there. And so if I'm hearing you right, I think what you're describing is just the careful, thoughtful approach, but really just asking the question with the analysts, how good is this company? Are they going to be around? Are they going to be able to survive what may come down the pike over the next six months or um, two years or three years? I think that's right. And I think things continue to evolve. And that's why our process is not static. It's constantly reassessing as new data points come in. For example, we had companies that even as inflation was uh, proving to be more of an issue last year, many of the companies in the second half of the year that we follow said, you know what, it's not a problem. We're, we're, We're able to pass through higher input costs. And yes, there's supply chain disruptions. And yes, that's affected the volume. But from a, a pricing power point of view, it seems okay. I think as we move in, moved into 2022, the question is how sustainable really is that, especially when um, volume declines might not be simply due to, well, we can't get enough parts to make the car, so now we're not selling as many cars. If we're moving to a place where I'm actually concerned that uh, I don't have enough money to afford a car or other durable goods. I think that's another phase. And quite frankly, while it may be great if companies still have pricing power, if you happen to be in a more economically sensitive part of the the economy, demand for your product may just go down. And, and I think when you're th- when you're looking at high yield companies that have balance sheets, and I'm not talking about the the good businesses that we're kind of more mm-hmm. focused on now. I'm talking about more of the the um, uh, companies that really run a little bit hot. Real high yield. Yeah, real <laughs> high yield, exactly. Or, or certainly real high risk, real high uh, risk. we might yeah, say. We those companies do give us pause. It's not to say that we don't own any of those, but I think if we're honest about that riskier part of high yield, where there, there's the economic sensitivity and then there's the financial leverage risk, the companies that'll outperform 
in the lower quality risk buckets, we'll probably do so by going down less. I think we need to be honest that yeah. if we do go into an economic slowdown, um, you know, the return profile of, of high yield is such that it will outperform equities, if I had to guess, based on a beta point of view. That's yeah. often been the way. Yeah. Although the past does not guarantee future results, <laughs> I want to make sure I say that. Touché. Yes, um, but I, I think we need to, you know, balance looking for opportunities across the risk spectrum, but also, as you say, um, be focused on investing and lending to, to good businesses because they will will persist. Yeah, I think what maybe gets lost in all the media coverage and excitement around financial markets is purpose. What is our purpose? I don't mean you and I or, or the MFS, but just the industry, right? What is the purpose of financial markets? And we do, to me, it's we do two things. We price risk and we allocate society's scarce resources, right? And capitalism that started doing that two, 300 years ago, depending on when you, when you start the clock. And, and you were talking about this, and I'll just say it a, a little bit differently. That purpose was disintermediated by central bank policy um, you know, right, 10, 12 years ago, and it just accelerated to this point to where we are today. And it just seems that created some maybe complacency, um, that asymmetry of risk that you refer to. And I just think it's so important for investors and clients and everyone in between just to remember like, what is the purpose of financial markets, right? You're, you specifically, you're lending money to below investment grade companies and are they going to be around and do they have the um, ability and propensity to, to pay you back? And I think what you're saying is some of them won't. I think that's right. And, and one of the things I'd point out, and you bring, you bring up a, an excellent observation, the distortions that have been created in the incentives, the risk return profile across all risky assets has been thrown a little bit out of whack, as you say, because of all this intervention. But that said, we still believe as part of our core philosophy that there will be defaults in high yield and investors, shareholders will be well served to avoid those, especially if you have a market you know, trading closer to par. I think the, the other piece of it that also resonates is even if the default environment uh, remains relatively tame, we still will have periods of drawdown. and. On the one hand, drawdown's not as big a deal because you can round trip it and ride it down and ride it back up. It's not necessarily a mm -hmm. permanent loss of capital. Mm -hmm. But as you can imagine, we want to be smart about this. And if there's opportunities, even in fixed income, this may resonate with more uh, equity investors in the audience, but buying low and selling high can still be a thing in high yield. And so even if drawdown risk is temporary, it's excruciating at the time, potentially. You look at the experience across all risky assets in March of 2020, and we were fortunate to be relatively defensively positioned, so we had capital to deploy, as you say, in ways that uh, we thought were attractive uh, after that drawdown. On the other hand, the market snapped back so quickly, you could say, well, why not just ride it out? Part of generating attractive uh, risk-adjusted returns is really being mindful, not only of the permanent capital losses, that almost should go without saying, but also how, are, how do we deploy that capital efficiently and really put it to work when we think we're getting compensated for the risks involved, when the market overshoots to the downside. And we think at this point, the market is vulnerable 
going forward to overshooting on the, the downside and, and, and we'll be ready to, to add risk at more attractive valuations. And that's really the value proposition of active management, right? It's mistake avoidance and then being able to take advantage when somebody else is making those mistakes. Right. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. Well, Mike, I've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you very much for this. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you very much to Mike Scatchard for joining me in my conversation today. We hope what you heard was the opportunity for active management and skilled security selection in the high yield universe is probably more important than it's been in recent years, given the environment that we've been in. But more importantly, thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.